0: hello everyone welcome to genealogy adventures my name is brian Sheffy,
1: and i'm donia williams hello everybody and we have an awesome show for you today
0: and before we get into things happy mother's day to all you know, everyone at home
1: yes happy mommy's day everybody um today is an awesome day because we are speaking with rachel decost We're talking to someone who's done what all of us, especially African-Americans have wanted to do, which is travel to where our ancestors um, came from. So Rachel is a writer, an educator, and an um, immigration policy expert from Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Um, She's been a community activist since her youth, um, working with organizations like Children's Aid Society, SOS Montfort Hospital, Um, the Famous Five Foundation and the Black Canadian Scholarship Fund. Her commitment has not been limited to local activities. She's traveled abroad to provide aid in South and Central America and West Africa. Mr. Costa lived and worked in Washington, D.C., lived and worked in Washington, D.C., where she honed her social economic policies and credentials while managing a national bipartisan tech education initiative on behalf of the United States Congress. Um, She also worked with Senator Obama, then-Senator Obama, presidential campaign, and then again in 2012, and was named in Ottawa's Top 50 Personalities in Ottawa's Life Magazine, 2010 Annual Edition. She did so much different stuff. You have to go to her website to just learn everything that she's done. So I want to just, just give you a brief overview of her, but please welcome Ms. Rachel. Cost. Am I saying your name right? That Rachel DeCoste is good. Okay. <laughs> How are you today?
2: I'm excellent. I'm happy to be here with you guys. That's good. I'm so glad that we're here
1: to talk to you.
0: Yep. So happy to have you on the show. <clears throat> so I guess it's probably a good idea to start at the very beginning. So presumably, you, know, you have done the, the African heritage tour, but taking a step back from that, I'm assuming you took a DNA test, and I'm sure this is something that our audience can really relate to. I mean, what, what kind of prompted you to, to do that?
2: I've always kind of, you know, I'm born and raised in Canada. And it's like, for you Americans, it's like growing up in North Dakota. It's cold, and there's not that many, many people of color, at least there wasn't when I grew up. I was usually the only one. And a question that you get a lot when you are Black in Canada is, where are you from? And if you tell them where you're from, like what part of town you're from, that's usually not a good enough answer. Usually want, they want to know where you're really from because you can't possibly be Canadian. We've been A lot of people haven't been here for 400 years, but somehow they just haven't gotten the memo yet. Wow. So when you get that question over and over and over and over again your whole entire life, it begs the question... If I don't really belong here where do I belong where where am I from and I know my parents are from the Caribbean I know where they immigrated from but you know that we originate from Africa and we don't know exactly where we're from in Africa it's a huge continent it's like three times the size of the United States it's 54 countries how do you narrow that down I don't know now the Haitian folklore says that we're from Guinea if you look at a map of Africa, there's three countries with the word Guinea in it. There's Guinea-Bissau, Guinea-Conakry, and Equatorial Guinea. And the folklore doesn't say which one. I know that um, what we North Americans called voodoo, the, the belief system is from what is now called Benin. So I think maybe we're from there or that region, but really no idea. And until the technology advanced for everyday Americans, everyday humans to do the tests, uh, there was really no way for me to find that out. You know, colonizers didn't keep records. So I saw an ad somewhere, maybe it was on TV or something or on the internet. And I thought, well, maybe this is the right time for me to to do that test and find that out not just for me but for my whole family so i ordered online i got the vial in the mail i spit in the vial and i sent it back and a couple weeks later i got an email with a map of approximately where my ancestors might be from now like most um most black people in the americas i have some european heritage in me so I already knew that I had some French in me because uh, the French are the ones that colonized Haiti. So that's not a secret. Um, But the African side, I had no idea. And just seeing the colors and the map of where I might have distant cousins that maybe look like me, and maybe they have, you know, my different shapely curves. And just that idea is so enchanting and so intoxicating. And that was the first time I thought, I want to go to Africa and I know exactly where I want to go.
0: So what was, um, what was kind of the process of you and your family, if you don't mind talking about that, that, that mental process of opening the envelope or logging into the, the website and, and actually seeing those breakdowns and go, those different parts are part of me.
2: I was by myself. I was in DC at the time. I was by myself, a a lowly poor grad student. So it wasn't a family event. It was just me by myself looking at it. I think I remember staring at it for a long time. And then looking at the map of the current countries, you know, the borders were done after uh, our ancestors were, were taken. So looking at the map and trying to figure out which countries that is and where it overlaps and um and the first thing i did after i emailed my family my mom my dad my siblings i emailed every african friend i had that we now have uh, perhaps maybe some a lineage and i said hey we might be cousins (laughs) and i just shared the, the the map the joy on all my social media and that was really just a fascinating um moment of being able to connect those dots that i never thought 20, 30 years ago, it was impossible for you to even connect those dots. So just the, the the idea was planted that wow, I know where I'm from now, and I would love to to kind of see what that's like. And I also have to say, like all Black people, well, all Black people in the North in North America or the in the Americans who are who are descendant of enslaved people, when you start to think about genealogy, eventually you're gonna hit some difficult subject matters, which is slavery, Mm -hmm. right? There's, There's just no way for me to go back and eventually not hit that 400 year period or 300 year period in my case. So that part is difficult. I think there was a bit of a psychological blockage even exploring Africa for most of my life because it's such a hard thing to face. But I finally came to a place in my life where I was comfortable or um, courageous enough to go through that. And I encourage everybody listening who's a little bit you know, scared about going through that. The best part of this whole thing is finding out what we were before slavery. Before slavery, we were kings, we were queens, we were... Um, you know, technical people we were seamstresses we were leaders we were innovators and if you if you block yourself pre-slavery you're missing out on all the good stuff before that mm-hmm. and well,
0: I like how you
1: put I like how you said not just kings and queens we were regular people too because everybody can't be a king and queen one of the things that I, I get kind of annoyed with um, is the fact that when they talk about black people, they were like, "You come from kings and queens." Well, everybody might not have come from a king or a queen. It's just that simple. I mean, I'm gonna keep, you know, I'm I'm the one in the group that always just keeps it honest and keeps it straightforward. So, I I'm not gonna say that I didn't come from kings and queens, but there's a possibility that I may not have, and. Whatever it is that I did come from, they were great folks because had they not been whoever they were, I would not be regardless. And it doesn't make me or them any less of people, regardless of what they were. And that's the part that should be focused upon, not just the fact that they were not kings and queens or whatever the you know that's a great great point point. yeah i like how you said that and i I think people need to stop focusing on just those types of things
2: whatever they were they were valuable
1: people they were valuable people exactly
0: which is part of the reason they were enslaved in the first place they had skills that colonists in in the americas didn't have
2: you know I did as many of the, I hate that Ghana calls them slave castles. I hate that word. A castle is for a princess. It's not to keep uh, people, most of them young people, in bondage. So I hate that word. But that's what they call them, slave castles. I call them slave dungeons. I visited multiple of them because, you know, there were so many. For them to to take that many millions of people across there were just as many of them as there are star- Starbucks. There, there's one at every corner right there, there were everywhere there's just a few of them that they've kept intact for you to visit now so i visited a, um three or four of them and like you i've been told that we were kings and queens uh that they took the best stock and that's why that you know they took us away from our, our motherland
1: and I, mean, I also that's a lie too <laughs> i'm I'm just saying i mean that's a lie too i i have one you know caveat
2: to that because i also did not believe i thought it was just bs that they're telling us to try to make us feel better about this whole horrible institution um but going through a particular um slave pen i guess that's the best word i could tell call it in benin and wita it's one of the biggest slave ports that they had about two million of us left from there and going through that whole museum uh, with a guided tour they explained how this whole thing came about so they would orchestrate according to this tour guide orchestrate civil war among uh, ethnic groups Mm -hmm. you go to king one and say hey can you attack the other king and bring us the spoils of war, including prisoners of war. And if the king won, first king says, nah, I know, I'm not interested, then you can go to the other king and offer them. Uh, and if you, whoever um, agrees to go to war against their neighbors, the Europeans will give you arms, uh-huh. which increases the chance that you might win. Uh-huh. And if you decide not to go, not to take their offer, they'll go to your Perhaps future enemy and help them win and you might be the 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 prisoner of war tomorrow. So that's a prisoner's problem where it's a lose lose situation. So they would do this, um, get prisoners of war, you might die during the the civil um, conflict, Uh, our ancestors might die also after this is over and they're prisoners of war and they're marched from the interior to the slave port. It might take days or weeks. You might die on the way. And then once you are put in a captive pen with uh, what they gave you to eat was as much as you could fit in one hand or or two hands on a daily basis, which is almost nothing. So you might die during that two to three month time where they are testing to see which ones are going to survive. Because if you can survive that, you might survive the middle passage. Then If you survive that, you might survive the middle passage. I think about 30 to 40% of people died on the way. And then once you get to the Americas, you might die of starvation, overwork, um, torture, disease, et cetera. So when I was told all this stuff and realized that if we were betting in Vegas, you would never bet that that you and I would be standing here right now.
0: Hmm.
2: We weren't. So, I would never have bet that I would still be here. And in that, in that way, I feel that they did pick the best, or the best survived, because if you're mildly weak, you don't survive all these um, obstacles. Well, that's
1: strongest. It's not necessarily best i got you there i mean that's strongest the thing is is that like you said if they went from king one and king two and they pushed the people together and whoever was the prisoners of war these were prisoners of war that 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 ended up losing the the prisoners of war are the people that were then shipped over yes so these were the this was the the left over. this was the ones that was left over so they, they weren't that might not have been that's let's, let's just be honest if this king lost his people it wasn't him that went over it was his people that went over sure. so those that's what i mean by okay eventually that king probably had to go too i'm not saying that that king did not go or his court did not go or or what have you but those soldiers were the first they were go. the first to be sacrificed they were the first to leave they were the first to walk out the door to go through the you know those those gates of no return those doors of no return mm-hmm. they were yeah. the first ones so they weren't they weren't kings and queens walking over them and door yeah and and that's the part that people are forgetting tell the whole story i yeah. say that not just for american history but for our own history to make sure all of the information is given properly and and in a and in accord, according, and accordingly. You know, don't just make half of it. Amen. I might be pissing somebody off right now, but that's what I do. So, you know. That I think that there's nothing wrong with the
2: truth. In fact, the truth was set us free in one of these um slave uh, dungeons, I believe it was the one in Ghana, they said that the king and I think it was the queen of one of these uh, Ashanti tribes, I believe, she was uh, kidnapped, but they didn't ship her. They put her in a special prison cell out by herself. They didn't want to kill her because that might uh, cause an uprising. Mm -hmm. So that, to your point, they did treat royalty slightly differently. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense.
1: That makes sense. That actually makes more sense. Yeah. That does. That makes more sense.
0: So my next question is about your DNA, again, your DNA results. Because I know when I took my first one, and I guess mentally, I was just expecting everything to be in West Africa. Because that's all we ever hear, West Africa, West Africa, West Africa. And we know that most enslaved people did indeed come from that that part of Africa. But my mind was blown because my DNA, and that's my autosomal, Y, and uh, mitochondrial, comes from all four corners of Africa. Big bucket in, in Western, but I've got Northern, Central, Eastern, South, just all four corners in the middle. Was your DNA results more or less kind of like that? Or did you find that there was more of a concentration in one place rather than the other?
2: The concentration was in the Bight of Benin for me, which is Nigeria, Benin, Togo area. Um, And overall, I'd say it starts from the south end of Mali and goes all the way down to Angola. Mm -hmm. So all of that is West Africa. Um, It's a huge swat of land. It's like going from Seattle to Tijuana, Mexico. Like It's a huge swat of land, but it was all concentrated in West Africa, I would say. And the European, well, that's uh, to be expected. It was French, a little bit of British. They think there's some Irish in there, but that's, when you see like it's less than 2%, you kind of take that with a grain of salt. salt. But the African part was clearly concentrated in Nigeria, what is today Nigeria, Benin and Togo, which makes sense because uh, that was one, uh, that area was a kingdom at the time.
0: So out of that huge region, I guess, what what process did you go through before you decided the first country you were going to go to?
2: I was living in D.C. at the time. I looked up um, all the countries I wanted to see. Most of them speak French, which I speak French. So that's not a problem. Um, I wanted to go to countries that were safe. Like At the time where I went, 2018, there was an election coming up in Mali. I would love to go to Mali. Mali has a a long, strong, uh, rich history, but I'm not going there before an election. I'm, you know, I'm not looking for trouble. So I put an X on Mali. That that was um, one of the options that I I had to eliminate, at least for for now. And then I looked up the flights, and basically th- there was a direct flight from DC to Dakar, Senegal. The idea of a direct flight not having to stop anywhere, it's easier. I just took the cheapest direct flight. And I thought from there, I'll figure out my next steps. I had about six countries I wanted to see and a limited amount of time and money. Um, and I didn't really know how it would work over there. You know, inter the flights within America is, are fairly cheap. Um, flights within Africa are just so, expensive it's often cheaper for you to fly to Europe than to fly to the country next door mm. so that limited my next step so when I, once I got to Dakar in Senegal for I was there for a whole month um I tried to figure out what my next step was I wanted to go to Cape Verde because I do speak Portuguese if do have a rich history although not my particular DNA um the flight was just out of this world. I just said, I can't spend that kind of money just to, to cross over, so I didn't go there. Um, after that, I went to uh, Ivory Coast. Um, very expensive four-hour flight to Ivory Coast, but I, that was my next step. I spent some time in Ivory Coast because I do have heritage there. And then I went to Benin And Benin is a small, narrow country. So is Togo next door. So it's easy to just drive to the border and see the next country over. And after Togo, the country next door is Ghana. And you can do all three without taking a flight. Um, So that was really my my next move. And I didn't go to Nigeria, partly because the visa is expensive. That's another issue we could go into. And partly because Nigeria is a kind of country where you want to have a local escort you around there's cultural cues that I didn't feel like I could navigate on my own. And I just didn't have that kind of person to guide me so Nigeria is going to be for next time.
0: Um, Well, actually, that's a really good point. because I think a lot of people from these shores wouldn't think about a different group of people. would have so you know social their own social norms their own kind of permissible things that you can say and do. What would be a really good way for people to to research that?
2: Yeah, I'd say that's a good question because I kind of learned as I went. Um, I haven't seen any books that really delve into that. Uh, travel books might have a little bit of that. Um, just an aside, but when I went to uh, spent my six months there, it wasn't a planned trip. It was sort of like a last minute, oh, my visa is ending next week. I have to get out of the United States. I can't work here legally. Um, my boss said, just go back to Ottawa and work from your mama's basement for six months. And I said, initially I said yes, but then I thought I'm 40 years old. I don't really wanna hang out with my mom that long. And if I can work remotely, I can go anywhere in the world. So I said, let me just work remotely from Africa. And that's that's really how this whole thing came about. So I think I had a week, week and a half to plan this whole thing. I didn't have time to kind of read all the books and get in, informed. Um, one of the ways I learned was by living with a local. So the first place I landed in Dakar, I stayed with a local. I got a room in the house with a local and i got to follow them around. They were really, really nice. (laughs) Allow me to follow them around. I could ask them dumb questions like, is it okay for me to do this? How do I negotiate with a taxi? You know, how do I dress? Uh, When should I cover up? Sometimes it's it's just to be polite, you might have to cover your hair. So I had somebody to ask and somebody that could be be honest with me. Um, But I do recommend if you can, you know, do a little bit of Googling. I'm sure some travel sites might, might give you hints because you don't want to go there and insult them having said that they do know especially by the way we dress if not the way we speak they can tell we're foreigners and they're a little bit more forgiving
1: or maybe very forgiving so you you just kind of you just you got your dna and you just said oh i'm just gonna go and do this i mean you really pretty much yeah
2: And whenever I have to tell you, whenever I got in trouble, because sometimes I got in trouble for, you know, doing the wrong thing, being in the wrong line. I just don't know. And um, or sometimes they try to swindle you. Um, They have words for white people that maybe are not flattering and they might call me that. (laughs) And they might try to swindle me in the market when I know the price is supposed to be five dollars. Why are you trying to get me for 50? And I would come, I would basically make a scene and say, you know, this is my first time in Africa in 300 years. I came to the motherland to meet my family, and this is how you treat me. How is this possible? And then they would feel really bad. And they would say, okay, okay, lady, we're sorry. You're no, they call you a sister. Then you're a sister. sister. (laughs) And then they would go back, go, they would treat you with a little bit more. Uh, maybe not respect, but a little bit more um, consideration for the fact that we are the same. We're from the same family, distant family. So I played that game when I had to. Wow. <laughs> so did you, did you meet family? You'd any DNA family? Unfortunately, the DNA test that I did does not give you names of family members in Africa. I did meet family in the Americas. Um, I found out through the, DNA, the ancestry DNA database of 18 million people. I found out that I had distant cousins in Miami, um, Georgia, NOLA, New Orleans, New York, Boston, a little bit in Canada, a little bit in the Caribbean. So that was kind of cool. Um, to, and some of them I got to meet in person, which is kind of exciting. Um, and it's funny, the one I got to meet in person, she just graduated with an engineering degree in Florida. And if you're if you're into tech or I, that was my that is my career in tech, I know that there aren't that many Black women in the tech field. Right. I've been the only one my whole career, which is over 20 years, and to find out that the one other one of these rare gems is also part of my fam, DNA family was sort of like a hmm, is there something in our bloodlines? that pushes us to these male-dominated lucrative fields. I don't know, I just thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. But in Africa, no, I didn't meet anybody that I was knowingly directly related to. However, especially in the interior, there are certain villages I went to where I swear to God, I thought I saw members of my family everywhere in town I did a double take like I thought oh is that my uncle oh no it's a total stranger they just look look alike and it happened in that whole village all day and I'm sure I'm sure somebody from my lineage came from that village I will put my hand to fire I know it
0: Well, I'm going to say, and we can chat about this after the show, if you have any known links to Halifax and Nova Scotia, and you have DNA Cousins in Georgia, may have an answer about that one. Okay. (laughs) We can talk about that after the show. Perfect. Um, Did you have an idea of any African ethnicities that you were, were connected to? And if you did, how did you find that out?
2: I had no idea whatsoever. Aside from the voodoo connection with Haiti um, and NOLA, you know, we know about that. I thought there might be some DNA that might go to the um, the, the birthplace of what we call voodoo, which is Abomey Kingdom in modern day Benin. So I thought there might be something there. But I had no idea whatsoever. Um, and it's going there and seeing, you know, when you are a minority, um, especially us black people, we tend to be taller and wider than what the model looks like in the rat on the rack. I know I have a lot of trouble finding pants that fit my my figure. And there are places in the motherland where you go and you realize everybody has that figure. Our figure is normal there, and they figure out how to wear clothing that fit properly. Often it's sometimes it's custom made, um, but that's one, one thing that I kind of took from them. And I also found that the art of getting dressed is very important there. And that's something that I found in, in Caribbean culture. And I thought there might be a link there. Um, another link that I felt like I saw, so a lot of Caribbean dishes I thought were Caribbean dishes. African dishes all you go there and you see the same exact thing perhaps wow. tweaked slightly and you realize we didn't invent anything we took everything from the motherland we even our cooking recipes and I, I I guess my point is that as a an Afro descendant in North America who doesn't know my original last name who's lost my original religion who doesn't exactly know what lands I came from. I sort of thought that we lost everything during slavery. And we didn't. And going to Africa made me realize that we didn't despite everything, despite the odds, despite not even being able to read and write down your recipes, despite all those challenges that you would think are impossible. We got to keep some of our culture in our food and I'd say also the music. Now, Africans recognize themselves in our music. We think that it's Haitian or Jamaican or, you know, Cuban. They claim all of that. Wow. And there's some strength in knowing that I still have some African in me, um,
1: despite everything. That makes me feel really good. Like every, that that make now that makes me first off, I liked how you said being an Afro descendant in North America. I I really like that term because like what we were talking about today. So here's where I I again probably piss other people off because of the fact that like I said, um I I I I love my Afro, my African American. Um, ancestors. I love them, but I love all of my ancestors because without them, I would not be no matter who they are. And I accept that. And I um, embrace that. But I also know and understand that there is not one person on this earth that can tell me to go back to where I came from. Because for right now, my oldest living person is from here. Mm-hmm. So this is where I came from. I'm like the Virginia Woolf family.
0: You know, when
1: you start screaming for Virginia Woolf, I'm, you know, I'm like that family. Moses Williams was before America was before America. The man was born in 1769 and more than likely he was a patriot. And that's something that I'm actually getting ready to start looking into as far as the DAR is concerned. And if he would, cause his uncle wasn't as a Patriot and more than likely he did stuff that worked with that stuff. And that's where that is. And guess what? Danya is originally right here. So if you try to tell me to go back where I came from, I am where I came from, period. But in the same instance, I know I accept, and I love the fact that I am also Afro-descended because I do have people who are from Africa. So I love that statement that you just made. And I love the fact that you said that it is still within me. And that just really filled me up when you made that comment to know that I still have it and I didn't lose it. And it's just awesome. So thank you for saying that.
2: Yeah, it yes. took going to Africa yeah. for me to realize that that we still have it, we still have it. Wow. We may have changed wow. the names, we may have changed the rest, you know, tweaked stuff, but it, in in its essence, we still kept that.
0: And again, it's the simple things. Like there's a dish on my mother's family, and it's a family that connects Donnie and I because we're we're both cousins, and it's very similar to jollof. It's not jollof. Oh. I wouldn't offend any African by suggesting that it was. They're touchy about that, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very remin- It's very reminiscent of jollof. And when I actually had my first authentically made African jollof dish, I'm like, I grew up on this more or less. You know, it's like I grew up on this kind of stuff. Um, the way that my family makes okra. Mm. Like, okay, and I had a, a an African um okra dish and it had sausage and pepper it was beautiful I'm like yeah this kind of reminds me of great grandma's okra and it's just staggering to think that after all of those centuries that even though it's not the same it's similar
1: wow wow y'all making me wonder if if something my mother makes now is I don't know that lady got some good soul food but (laughs) (laughs) you can see it (laughs)
0: So, basically, travel experiences, what are some of the ways that you would suggest anyone contemplating the kind of return visit to to Africa, ways that they can prepare both, I want to say, practically and physically, but also mentally and spiritually?
2: I'm going to start with practically. It would be good to learn a few words in French, because that's the language that most of our cousins speak um basic french it would also be good for you to decolonize start thinking about africa from a point of view that's outside what we were taught
0: okay
2: i'll give you a specific example because i was was gonna say
1: give me give give us something (laughs) more a little bit on that
2: (laughs) I was, I was raised in a North American school system, just like you were, where if we hear about Africa, it's pretty much all negative. Yeah. Uh, if we hear about in the news, it's negative.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's war, it's bloodshed, it's just backward stuff. And when I packed for my first maiden trip, I packed about a quarter of a huge suitcase of medical supplies like Tylenol and a tensor in case you sprain spring your ankle. And when I got to Africa, I realized that they have pharmacies too. Uh. <laughs> and I came to Africa with that baggage of prejudice and bias and ah, assumptions okay. that come from being colonized by our school system. I thought I had done some homework. Cause I, you know, I read some books and I watched some documentaries on YouTube. And I, I thought I kind of was was practical, but I wasn't at least not for medical supplies. Cause I wasted, I had to carry the stupid suitcase for four months and uh, I could have carried better stuff than just Tylenol. You can buy Tylenol there. Like that's dumb. So don't be like me and think that you're going to the jungle. They have pharmacies there. They have highways there. They have ambulances there. They have high rises there. They have running water. Like you don't need to bring everything.
1: So you went there with the mindset of thinking you was about to stay in a hut. I, didn't, I, that, I mean that that I mean not necessarily staying in a hut, but that was the thought process. Yeah. I mean, when you 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 were literally thinking of back in the day, that really racist thought process yeah. that was taught to you. Those racist cartoons that were taught to you, that you were gonna see them in brass skirts and Wow, you know you know what? I can understand you thinking that way. To a certain degree. I mean, not that as, as a whole, but I can understand you thinking that. And I felt so stupid carrying yeah. my Thailand. You
2: know, so yeah. just know that there's civilization there, that you don't have to bring everything. Um, it's always good to have a local you can ask. However, I did spend some time in a, a nonprofit in Senegal, rural Senegal. There was a school I found online. And it's a school for unwed mothers, children. Uh-huh. And it also teaches them to be self-sufficient, great program. I went, spent a week there, they give you room and board and you get to help out and and help, actually you get the pet there. Um, they have a, a pet turtle for the school, which is kind of interesting. So that was great. And I, before I went, I asked, I asked the school, um, I guess, headmaster, leader, person, you know, I'm coming from America, tell me what I can bring you. And they're very proud people. And they may not openly tell you what you can bring that could help them because it feels like begging and they're so proud. And I tried to explain to this guy, look, I'm in North America. I don't, I can't understand your cultural cues. I don't, I know you're trying to be shy. Don't be shy. I want to bring something. Tell me, because, you know, I have Walmart. I could, whatever you want. And he couldn't, I just couldn't get through to him. And arriving at the school, there's so much need. I could have brought a bunch of pencils. Everybody could have had two pencils for the whole year. I could have brought so many like little soap. I could have gone to Costco and got like huge packs of soap that you could have had soap for the next year. I could have brought so much, but I didn't know what he needed and he couldn't tell me. And there was a barrier. So I want to tell you to ask, but I also feel like sometimes they won't tell you just because they're so proud and they don't want to feel like like their charity, even though right. you feel like you're doing God's work. Cause I feel, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all about karma. I feel like if you give to poor people, it'll come back to you eventually. Right. But that, that was a failure. So I, I want to give you advice, but I don't really have the answer because I was not
1: successful. Well, I mean, you just gave the advice.
0: So another kind of practical minded question. Um, as Americans, we are not used to haggling. And I, the first time I had to haggle was in a market in America. <laughs> and to say that I was out of my comfort zone is an understatement. So can you just give some general advice about ha- good ways to haggle in, my, in markets that people might shop at in Africa?
2: You might start smaller, like in the Caribbean haggling, before you go to the big leagues, number one. hmm and the way I I can't haggle. I don't know how to haggle. And even worse, I'm at the market just to buy stuff and leave. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to know where you're from. I don't want you to tell me and another thing. They ask you where you're from. Do not tell them you're from America. That just says dollar sign. Like that's what you're saying. So I told everybody I was from Haiti. I told everybody I was a secretary. I'm not going to tell them I'm an engineer. Like that's, that's just saying, like, that's just saying dollar sign. And still they tried to, they tried to swindle me. And I ended up having to go to the market with an escort, with a local escort that I would get at the hostel or a neighbor even, or a neighbor's child, doesn't matter who, as long as they're local. And I tell the local what I want and they do the haggling, but I just was never, I never got good at it. And I also feel like my skin color revealed too much. Um, one of the things you have to know is that in Africa, or at least parts of West Africa I've visited, people don't wear sunglasses, even though the sun is bright and killing your eyes. It's not part of their culture to wear sunglasses all day. Although for a North American, I need them yeah. to breathe. Like, it's a necessity for me. So as soon as you walk outside with your sunglasses, you're basically announcing to the world that you're a tourist. And that doesn't help at the market. And another point I wanna make is that in North America, I'm dark-skinned. In West Africa, I'm Mariah Carey. They know right away, I do not blend even after several months there where i'm tanned i still don't look like like the same color as them thanks to you know colonization and slavery and rape of my great ancestors so what color am i i think we're probably the same tone i got a reddish tone i think you know it's hard to you know it's internet lighting so it's not perfect and i have a lot of light on me so i look lighter than i'm wrong. but really i'm dark i'm a darker hued person and but i i found that there was what i believe to be colorism happening there it was the first time in my life that i i felt privileged because of my light skin wow <laughs> I talk about it in my audiobook. I mean, it's just certain things that happen. I'm like, how this must, there must be a reason why people think I'm the boss everywhere I go. And I think it was because I was light skinned, which I, I've never been light skinned in my life. It's never been a term I've ever used to describe myself, but I definitely felt that over there. Um, so, I think, one, there's,
0: there's lots of tells. It sounds as though there's when, when we go to visit, when someone who isn't from the African continent goes to visit you're kind of spotted immediately
2: you're spotted immediately and I, it's hard if you're trying to blend just come with the idea that you may not blend as much as you would like mm-hmm. and that they might already know that you're a foreigner and treat you differently and you might have to work a little bit harder to be accepted as a a, um, a brother or a sister a commoner Okay. Because the default is, oh, here comes white. Actually, I was called a white lady, which, <laughs> which is shocking, but that 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 might be the initial way that they see you. And you might have to work to integrate. And that just means that just means being a regular person and, and showing them that you are uh, that you are proud of your heritage, that you're here to learn that you're not coming here as a higher upper class person than their lower class, but that you're equal. Um, and they they tend to accept me more after we've broken red together and they realize that I'm a regular person too. And I tr- I wanna, I, in fact, I, I ve- revere them because I wanna hear about their stories and their history and, and how they feel about us coming back and, and and how, and they really love hearing about how you love their food or their music. They wanna hear that you respect their culture as equals.
0: So am I right in thinking that the flip side of that is because we have lots of questions and lots of observations that by our physical differences that are easily spotted, we need to be prepared to equally be asked to share that we're gonna be asked questions.
2: Definitely. Definitely, you'll be asked questions. Um, I'd say my impression is that what they know about the Americas is what's what Hollywood tells them, that it's the land of milk and honey, that things come, come easily. And I spent quite some time explaining to people that hmm. no, I, I have to work for this. You know, Specific example, I go to this museum it's closed, it's closed for, for reparation uh, for uh, repairs. And the guy at the front says, oh, well, just come back you know, six months from now. And it dawned on me that they don't realize I don't have the money to go back and forth. I, like it's, <laughs> I don't have the vacation to just go back and forth, but they have the impression that we're from money and that we could just fly back and forth and take time off work and it, it's just that easy. So I did spend some time trying to convince people around me that I'm just like you, that I had to work to get here. This is a lifetime, uh, a trip that I I may not come back. Or if I do, it might take years. And just to try to convince them that that I'm working class just like you're working class. And I'm not sure it was successful in all all efforts, but I do feel that it helped um, to
1: foster that relationship. So I wanted to ask you a quick question about your book. Um, after you got back, uh, and, and is it is it paper and audio, first off, It's only audio. Okay. All I right. am working on a paper book that'll be
2: even more um, involved, but that might take years. It takes forever to write a book. Yeah, it does.
1: <laughs> so what made you choose audio over paper? Because it would take longer or? It would take the book will take forever.
2: And I have a friend of a friend who heard about my story, you know, when I came home, I had shared a lot through social media. But when I came home, and family would come over, friends would come over, and they would ask me about stuff that wasn't on posted online. And I would hold court for hours. Like I had to push them out of my house. Okay, it's 11 o'clock, it's midnight, you have to get go, we'll do this another time. And I realized the interest was very pronounced and a friend of a friend of a friend who happens to be an audio podcast producer heard about my story and contacted me directly and said you know your story is so good you should share it and audio is a way that you could share it faster books take forever to write and edit and publish and then promote and cost a lot of money we could make an audio within a couple of months and he came over he created a an audio recording studio out of a closet, and I spoke for six hours into a microphone. He recorded it, edited it, and then we released it as an audiobook uh, a month later. Wow! So, and the audiobook is basically just me talking about the trip, talking about my adventures, the observations, the trials and tribulations, the black joy and the black pain, and I'm talking like I'm talking to a girlfriend over the phone. So it's not me reading the audio book and being robotic. It's just me talking. And um, he felt like the passion in my voice when I was speaking was worth recording. And that's what we did.
1: So your choice, because we discussed this before we got on, your choice to go where you went was based on your DNA. It was not based on where everybody normally goes, Ghana um, or anything like that. So
2: I, have no, I love Ghana. I went to Ghana. I loved it. Joloff was great. Nothing against Ghana. However, when they inaugurated the year of return in Washington, D.C., they sent some kind of minister there to announce it to the United States, specifically the United States, come. In one of those press releases, it says that part of the reason they're doing this is to fill their coffers with U.S. dollars and tourism dollars. It's a great marketing um, strategy, but it also begs the question, do you wanna pick your maiden voyage to the motherland, such an important pilgrimage? Do you wanna choose that based on a marketing ploy, or do you wanna choose it based on something more significant? And when I did some research on this, I looked up, you know, Louis Armstrong went to Ghana in 1956 as an ambassador to, uh, to jazz music. So we didn't do a DNA test. It wasn't available back then. He didn't go on based on where he's from. He just based on whatever the American government wanted to promote at the time. Malcolm X first went to Sudan and Nigeria in 59. Is that is that where his air heritage is from? We know, I think what his mother might have been from the Caribbean, but... I doubt that. He just went based on business because his boss wanted him to do the the legwork before he went there. Um, Muhammad Ali went to Zaire for the first time. Is that where he's from? I don't know. He went there on business. So I just feel like it's such an important pilgrimage. Please make it at least the first time, the first steps. Go somewhere where your ancestors stepped first. It has so much more meaning. And I I just think it's too important to leave to to the whim of some marketing ploy.
0: Because I feel, and this is my own personal belief, that Africans get lumped all together because you would never tell a European person, oh, just do a heritage tour in Europe. It doesn't matter if it's Switzerland or France or Iceland or Portugal, which are very different cultural. Very
2: different. You would say
0: to to a Spanish speaking person, go to Cuba, go to Puerto Rico, go to Mexico, go to Argentina. They are very different cultures. But when it comes to us, it's just Africa. (laughs) They're just Africans. (laughs) It really gets me angry and it it upsets me because there are thousands of different ethnic peoples that populate this enormous continent and they just get lumped together.
1: I think one of the reasons why they say that though is because they think about the the doors of no return and they but a lot of people don't realize that there are several doors of no return
0: yes
1: and yes. And, I, and that's the part that they don't get but the i think the the most famous ones are in ghana if I there's two that.
2: in ghana there's one in benin there's another one in gore in senegal those are the big ones mm-hmm. every country but literally the whole um shoreline of
1: west africa there was one at every corner it was like mcdonald's right 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 but but see but people aren't it's not because again it's not taught in that manner it's as if there was only one door of no return so this is the one that you need to go to and it's right here and that's that so i think that's why you know, people are, are looking in it at it in that manner and in that way, mm-hmm. and, and that might be it. Um, but we have come to five minutes out of the show. And Rachel, you're awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're awesome. so great to talk. Don't to get off. Who are just
2: don't hash as I am about our history and our heritage. I feel the passion from both of you. Um, and thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation.
1: Yeah, it has.
0: And I said, thank you so much for being on the show. So, and we, do we have any questions from the the audience?
1: No. One guy said that he thinks you. <laughs> he said he thinks you're related because <laughs> he said he said you might be. Dallas Henderson said you might be my cousin. I am 32 percent Nigerian, Mali, Benin, and Cameroon, and Ghana. Sounds like my most of my DNA, yes. Yeah. So he says that, and then you made a comment. You also um, made a statement saying that um, you you felt like when you were in different areas that you saw your family. You know that probably was your family. I just. Thought that. I feel it was.
2: I feel it was. The only thing that was missing is a, a DNA test for me to get them to spit in the vial and prove it. But I, I will <laughs> die, I will die thinking that these were my distant family members there's no way that they could look so much like my family and be a coincidence.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's the other thing that I'm hoping that the big DNA companies will get better at is as their African DNA data sets get better, more sophisticated and larger, more representative of the peoples that live there, huh. we'll start telling people, instead of just saying, Molly, give you what... Well, the highest population group in Mali is this ethnic group to be able to give us that kind of breakdown like they do for Europeans.
1: I believe that that day will come. Uh, well, you know, that's what ancestry think they're doing when they, okay, when they think they're removing the, the white people from our DNA. That's that's what they think they're doing. That's but the, I, I just that's don't feel lie. like.
0: I agree with you. But for me, that's the big lie because again, the average african american has 14% european dna so now you're going to hide their european ancestry from them uh-huh that, but that's
1: what they think they don't that's what they think they're doing but that's not what they're doing no but but that's what they think they're doing then in the same instance you have in in defense cuz i can go both ways in the same instance you have the african ancestry who says that they can pinpoint your tribe which is also something that i don't believe can be done because your families come from everywhere. So to say that you are pinpointing down to the very last tribe is saying that you're that this one person, there were millions of tribes. First and foremost, Africa is a continent. It's not a country. It is hundreds of countries within the continent of Africa. So you're saying that all of these different places, you're pinpointing one person of this it's impossible it's impossible so yeah that's just my thought process it's clear that some companies
2: are playing with our emotions as afro descendants um and i think that it could be lucrative for some of them so you gotta parse through that
1: yeah
2: you gotta parse through that yeah so before i leave you i want to tell you that my book is my audio book is available yes um, I will create a, a discount code. Everybody who uh, goes on this show gets a discount code, um, 50% you. off. Let's create the code right now. What it will be? It will be Africa. Okay. So, to me. So write the word Africa, all lowercase um, until the end of next month. You'll get 50% off. And the book is available online at yearofreturnbook.com.
1: I have already put it in the in, in the chat, but we will redo it with the um the discount code and Brian will take care of that. But thank you so much. Don't leave the the chat this this area. Oh, I'm I could see as long as you want. <laughs> and but thank you guys for, you know, joining us next week. Brian, you want to say that real quick?
0: Next week we are touching on policing African Americans from slave patrols. To police departments and that is with retired police chief ralph godby
1: yeah that's gonna be a touchy subject so you guys come on through y'all know my mouth so it's gonna be good
0: <laughs> so until then enjoy the rest of your sunday again have a have a wonderful blessed uh, mother's day i'm brian Sheffy,
1: and i'm donia williams you guys have an awesome day enjoy rest be good love you guys <laughs>